I'd like to read some words from the first chapter of Acts, but I wouldn't encourage you necessarily to turn there, just to listen. After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. I invite you to kind of hit the pause button right here and put yourself in the story and try to imagine the roller coaster of emotion that the last two months had been for these disciples. They had been following Christ for about three years, maybe three and a half. They had put all their hope in this Messiah that would come and would usher in the kingdom of God, that would overthrow Roman oppression and would usher in a new divine kingdom. And then they had watched him be beaten almost beyond recognition, nailed to a cross, and crucified before them. And they had experienced the despair of his death and lived with it until that glorious morning of the resurrection when all their hopes swelled back up again and and they saw him. They saw him many times. They ate with him. He restored them. He restored their faith. He restored their hope. He restored their trust. And now, he's gone again. And so just imagine that roller coaster of emotion. Maybe your week has been a roller coaster of emotion. Or maybe there you can take your mind to a season of your life where it was just one height, one valley, one height, one valley. And yet he promised a gift, didn't he? He says, he says you will receive a gift. The Father will give you a gift. We're starting a new series. It's titled Supernatural. And we're going to be focused on the Holy Spirit and the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives, the activity that the Holy Spirit has in the lives of believers. Today we're going to be talking about a supernatural gift. We're talking about this supernatural gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit And we'll be looking at Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit that he uh, is recorded in John 14. We'll also be looking over the course of the next few weeks at topics like the supernatural love that we can have for each other and for God that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The supernatural unity that we can enjoy with other believers. The supernatural power that's available to us. The supernatural life that we can live. The supernatural prayer that is available to us, to move beyond the natural, beyond what is available to us in our own power, 
to what the Spirit can do in us and through us. And right in the middle of that, I'm excited that uh, Pastor Alfred Colembo, who's had a long-standing relationship with this congregation over decades, is going to be here. He'll be preaching on September 29th. There'll be a mission lunch to follow that. I want you to get that on your calendar. Make sure that you uh, save that date and, and make a plans to be there in RSVP because that's going to be a wonderful, wonderful opportunity uh, to learn. And, and I've shared this topic with him, and he said, oh, I've got some ideas on that. So he'll be sharing along the same theme. But a couple of weeks ago, I, I talked a little bit about the difference between form and substance. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that conversation or that discussion. And my mind went back to that this week as I think it provides the perfect bridge from our series on Daniel that we just finished up and into this series on the Holy Spirit. So I want to read something to you from Paul David Tripp. Uh, I don't recommend a ton of books up here, but if you're looking for a daily devotional, I can't recommend one higher than Paul David Tripp's devotional, New Morning Mercies. This is a phenomenal uh, phenomenal one page a day. It was given to me last October as a pastor appreciation gift, and what a gift it has been almost every day. And when I miss a day, I go back and read the day before. It's that good. And so uh, you could run down to Crossroads this week and pick up a copy. I know that they stock it. Um, just get this book in your hands and, and read it every day. It is life into my soul, and I think you would enjoy it as well. I want to read this Uh, to you um, from just a few weeks ago. It says that real faith never calls you to swindle yourself into thinking that things are better than they are. Biblical faith is shockingly honest and shockingly hopeful. Biblical faith is not about wearing a cheesy smile while living in a constant state of religious denial. It's not about covering the stark and dark realities of a fallen world with overused quasi-biblical cliches. It's not about priding yourself on your ability to keep God's rules or thinking you're more sanctified because you're on pace to read through the Bible again this year. It's not about cleaning yourself up on Sunday so your public persona hides the real details of your private spiritual life. It's not about keeping score of how many years you've gone without missing a worship service. And it's not about saying you're okay when you give daily empirical evidence that you are anything but okay. All of these are forms of religion. There are things that we can do to appear religious. You see, if you are doing, saying, or thinking religious things that are meant to protect you from reality, you are not living biblical Christianity. You may feel better at times, but your heart has not been quieted by biblical faith. The substance behind all these forms is the faith of the Bible, which will never call you to deny reality in any way. The faith of the Bible is so in awe of the grandeur and glory of God that it is able to look at the darkest of realities in life and not be afraid. Noah did not need to deny reality in order to spend 120 years building that ark. Abraham did not need to deny reality in order to leave his home without knowing for sure where God was taking him. David did not need to deny reality in order to face Goliath in battle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we looked at last week, they did not need to deny reality in order to step into that white-hot furnace. Peter didn't deny reality in order to stand before the Sanhedrin and refuse to quit preaching the gospel. You see, it wasn't the naivete of faith that propelled these people. No, it was the clarity of faith that caused them to do what they did. It was not the forms... Of faith. It was the substance of their faith. 
And it is only when you look at this dark world through the lens of the existence, power, authority, wisdom, faithfulness, love, and grace, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you see reality with clarity. That's what we are talking about today. That's what we are talking about in this series. Because we can handle the forms on our own. We can follow the forms of religion on our own. We can accomplish them. And we can even do so with a religious devotion and check all the boxes. You know what I'm talking about. But it is the substance that moves us beyond the forms and into the power. You see, you can have the forms on your own, but we need the Holy Spirit to move us beyond forms into the substance of faith, into a faith that we read about on the pages of Scripture, a faith that's available to us today. You see, without the Holy Spirit, Christianity is all form and no power. But with the Holy Spirit, all of the forms take on the power of God, and they accomplish the purpose of God. And so that's what we're talking about today. My, as I was just putting going through this the last time this morning, my mind went to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and maybe you've already gone there, where he talks about the last days and how there'll be terrible times in the last days when people do all kinds of terrible things. And then he says in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Having a form of godliness that checks boxes, that reads its Bible and goes to church and, and does these different things, but denies the power of of godliness, the power of the Holy Spirit living within us and propelling us forward. And that is what we're talking about today. But before we talk about the Holy Spirit, I want to do just a little crash course refresher on the Trinity, on the Trinity. Maybe you know all about the Trinity and you could teach on the Trinity, but maybe it'd be good to be reminded because I have witnessed in modern Christianity and contemporary Christianity a relegation of the Holy Spirit to second or third class status in the Trinity. And it's vitally important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is equal with, is, is entirely God, is entirely equal to God the Father and entirely equal to God the Son. And so this diagram on the screen is a wonderful way to understand what Augustine called the Trinity as three persons but one substance. That there are three unique personalities of the Trinity that all have the same substance of being divine, entirely and completely divine. And so you can see on the image behind me that God is the Holy Spirit, God is the Father, God is the Son... But somehow, the Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father, that they have uniqueness and they have distinction from and between each other, but they are all 100% God. This is a great mystery, how this actually works. And we have to get more comfortable with mystery sometimes, I think. But this is how God chooses to reveal himself to us, and it's the only way that he could reveal himself to us because God is himself a community of divine love. God the Father loving God the Son and God the Spirit, and God the Spirit loving God the Father and God the Son, and them all loving each other eternally. This is the triune God that we worship. It is an eternal community of divine love. Love And with that as the foundation, 
Let's look at John chapter 14. If you would turn in your Bibles to John 14, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in verses 15 through 26. This is on page 1676, if you have one of the blue hardcover Bibles uh, that are in the seats in front of you. Just to bring you up to speed, in John 14, Jesus has had his entire earthly ministry. He's in the last week of his life, really the last few days of his life. He's just in John 13, uh, had the last supper with the disciples. He's instituted the new covenant. Uh, He's washed their feet. And he begins in John 14 through 16 what is referred to commonly as the last discourse. It's this teaching that he gives to his disciples in John's gospel, sort of like his commencement address or his parting words as he has this one more time to speak with them, this one more opportunity to teach them and to communicate things to them. And these are the things that he chooses to speak in that moment. Picking up in verse 15, Jesus said, "'If you love me, you will obey what I command.'" And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and will show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me... He will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is God's word. What a gift. What a supernatural gift Jesus describes here. And in the passage that we just looked at, verses 16 and 17 and verse 26 sort of provide us with the bookends of this passage. And they provide us with some names and some descriptions of the Holy Spirit that I think we should spend some time with at the outset. Verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. He's describing a supernatural gift of the triune God by the triune God. Do you see that? These are one of these verses in Scripture where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present in one verse of Scripture. That Jesus, the Son, is asking God, the Father, to send God, the Spirit, that we might have this supernatural gift and then if you look at the last verse of our passage, you see in verse 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, there it is again, Spirit, Father, Son, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. 
Both of these verses contain all three persons of the Holy Spirit and describe a supernatural gift that will be given to each and every believer. And so I want to look at the names of the Holy Spirit first, and then the roles or the ministry of the Holy Spirit second, because there is a correlation there. There's a parallel there. So first, let's look at the names of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you their Greek constructs as well as the translation of them, because this, these words that are used are unique, and they give us insight into who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does in our life. The first is this Greek word paraclete. Paraclete. And that is the word that is translated as counselor in the New International Version, which we put on the screen. If you have a different version, it might be translated as helper. It might be translated as advocate. It might be translated as comforter. These are all reasonable translations for this word paraclete in the Greek language. And we see them referring to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, and in the letters of John. But if you look outside the Bible, the word paraclete is almost exclusively used in a legal sense and would have to do with an advocate, one that advocates like a lawyer or an attorney, or sometimes we call, we refer to lawyers and attorneys as counselors, right? If you watch Law and Order or you watch legal movies, they refer to the, the lawyer as counselor, somebody who gives legal advice. But in this case, it's one who advocates for us on behalf of us before the Father, and so that word advocate, which probably would be in, I think, just the New Revised Standard Version, if you have that one, it translates this as advocate. But all of these are good translations. All of these, counselor, helper, advocate, friend, comforter, strengthener, they all give us insight into the various things that that word means and the various roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. The next word or name or title for the Holy Spirit is Numa Tes Aletheas. Numa Tes Aletheas. And this is the Greek construct for spirit of truth. Spirit being the word pneuma. If you know about pneumatics, that's anything that moves air is considered pneumatics because it gets that from the, the Greek and the, the Latin root pneuma, meaning breath or air or spirit. And so this, this phrase is attached to the Holy Spirit, is attached to the advocate. They're all talking about the same person, the same role, as the spirit of truth. And that word truth, aletheos, is, is so much beyond just what happens to be true right here and now. It is, it is quintessential reality. It is truly a true truth, maybe is a good way to think of it. It is describing things as they really and truly are. That is the spirit of truth, the spirit of reality, as it truly is. And lastly, pneuma to agion, pneuma to agion, agion being the Greek word for holy, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this word, agios, if you've ever been to, I think it's Istanbul, I was going to look it up. The Hagia Sophia, this, this beautiful cathedral that was built during the Byzantine Empire. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. Hagia Sophia, the beautiful wisdom. This is the church of the beautiful wisdom. And, and this church of the holy wisdom of God. That's what Agia or Agios means when translated. And that word Agia or Agion means to be set apart, to be sacred, to be sacred. 
to be uncommon, to be different than the rest of the created world. So when we talk about something being holy, we're talking about it being set apart, having a special use, being sacred in its essence. And that is the Holy Spirit. It is the comforter, counselor, helper, and advocate and friend. He is the spirit of truth. He is the Holy Spirit of God. And these names of the Holy Spirit, as I said, give us insight into the roles and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to comfort us, not just to pat us on the back and, and you know, rub our shoulders, that kind of comfort, but the real meaning of comfort is to come alongside with strength, to come alongside with fortifications, come fort, to come alongside with strength. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us in our weakness with supernatural strength and power. The Holy Spirit comforts us. The Holy Spirit strengthens us. The Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit advocates for us and gives us counsel and gives us wisdom. These are all roles of the Holy Spirit that we find in the name paraclete. His name describes what he does for us. The second we get right out of verse 26. If you look at 26 in the second half of that, he says, He will teach you all things. The second role of the Holy Spirit is to teach us. What was the second name of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of truth. We want to learn the truth. We want to understand reality. We want to have supernatural wisdom. We need to learn from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. We need Him to teach us from His Word, from the Word of God. In our fellowship one with another, he teaches us. He comes in and instructs us and directs us and admonishes us. And keep in mind, we're just about 10, 15, 20 verses out from when Jesus declared to the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. And when he did that, he correlated and created a rock-solid correlation within the Trinity and within his essence of life and truth and the way that we live our lives of truth. Do you see that? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I'm going to send you the spirit of truth in order to instruct you and direct you and admonish you in the ways of truth, in the ways of reality. And the Holy Spirit shows us the way and teaches us the truth that leads to the abundant and eternal life. Did you catch that? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, comes and shows us the way and teaches us the truth that leads us to the abundant eternal life that God desires for each and every one of us to have. This is good news. This is really good news. It's like they had it all figured out. There's no plan B. They weren't scrambling around. God, what are we going to do now? No, this was the intent. And the third role of the Holy Spirit is to remind us. Do you see that in the last phrase of verse 26? And will remind you of everything I have said to you. Do you think as they watched him go up into the clouds that we read about at the very beginning, that they thought, I wonder if this is what he was talking about back in John 14. Of course, they didn't call it John 14. They, they called it, you know, a little over a month ago, right before he was crucified on our behalf. Maybe the Spirit was already starting to call to mind, already starting to prompt them, already starting to bring conviction. You see, this is the other role of the Holy Spirit, to remind us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit that reminds us to live holy lives, to pursue holy lives. When that little nudge comes on your shoulder and says, don't do that. Don't look there. 
Don't say that. Don't type that. Don't click send. Whatever you do, don't click send. Don't even think that way. That's always the Holy Spirit reminding us to be set apart, to be holy. This is the process of sanctification where we become set apart, where sin loses its luster, where we don't want to do it anymore because we want to be pleasing to God because His love is alive in us and through us because He's taught us the truth and showed us the way to the abundant life that He wants us to be. And sin doesn't have any part in that. And so in verse 17, in the second half of verse 17, He says to us, The Holy Spirit, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. You know him because you know me. Jesus is saying, you've been spending the last three and a half years walking all over Israel with me. You know me and the Holy Spirit is me coming to live within you. You know it. You recognize it. The Holy Spirit lives with and will be in you, Jesus said. You will know him. You will recognize him. You will recognize that voice as he teaches you, as he reminds you. And this points to us as Christians, as believers, as those who have put our faith and hope and trust in God and who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We ought to look very different to the world that does not recognize or have the Holy Spirit. There's the world without God, the world apart from God, the world moving away from God. And then there are to be those who the Holy Spirit lives in us and works through us. And we know him and we recognize him. We recognize him when he speaks to us and we recognize him when he speaks to us through others. And we should be characteristically different from the world that does not recognize or have the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 17 is all about. That's called holiness. It's called sacredness. That's called set apart. That the people who are in the family of God, the people who love and serve God, who do so out of a life of love, ought to look different than the people who don't. This is just common sense. And we can't skip verse 20. I wish we could look at every verse. Verse 18 and 19 tell us, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'll come to you maybe in a different form, but I'm coming back. I'm coming in the form of the Holy Spirit. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because you will recognize me in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, when you recognize that, when all this takes place, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This is describing a spiritual reality. I had to draw this out. This phrase that Jesus uses at the end of verse 20, he says that you will recognize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I drew the circles. I drew the circle for Father, and Jesus inside the Father, and then me inside of Jesus. And then the last phrase is, he'll be inside of me. So it's, it's like, go ahead and put that image up, Larry, of, of the circles and, and how we see this. This is describing a spiritual reality that God through the person of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, comes and indwells us, lives inside of us, and ushers us into this trinity, this community of divine love. That that's available to us. This is a supernatural gift. This isn't something wrapped up in a box from Walmart or Target or someplace like that. This is a supernatural gift. This is describing a reality that Jesus would be in us and we would be in him and he would be in the Father. And the Holy Spirit is what makes it all happen. The Holy Spirit is what makes it work. And the outcome of that in verse 21 is just common sense. Whoever has my commands and obeys them with me in him and us in God the Father and and all of that going on, he is the one who loves me. 
He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. The Holy Spirit is enabling all of this to take place. And it becomes this symbiotic relationship where we enter that community of divine love. Christ in us, the Spirit in us, us in Christ, and all of it within the Trinity. All of it within this community of divine love of God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Now, how many of you noticed in verse 22 and 23 when Judas, not Judas Iscariot, asked this question? It was actually a really good question. And if we're honest, sometimes when the disciples ask a question in the middle of one of Jesus' discourse, it's not a good question. They have some really boneheaded questions, right? Like, Lord, where are you going? And they totally missed the point of what he was talking about. Or, Lord, which one of us is going to sit your right hand? Which one is going to sit at your left hand? And they're so focused on their position and, and making sure that their ego's in the right place. But Judas asks a really good question, and maybe it's a question that you wonder too. And maybe you wonder, like I did the first time I read it, did Jesus actually answer the question? Let's look at this. He says, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? He just said, you know, they can't recognize me. The world can't recognize the Spirit, but you will. And he asks a really good question, and, and it's tempting at first glance to think, well, Jesus didn't really answer his question, but I think he absolutely answered his question. I think he answered it in the best way possible. He reminds them of what he just said back in verse 15. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And the new commandment that Jesus had just given them at the end of chapter 13 was love one another. Love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. By this will all men recognize and see that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So I believe that is the command that he's talking about in verse 15, and I believe that is the teaching that he is referring to in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. He will love others. My Father will love him, and we will come to him in the person of the Holy Spirit and make our home within him. He absolutely answers the question. And I think that's our bottom line today. I think that's our bottom line. Don't miss this. It's the point of the whole passage. That spirit-filled believers are how Jesus reveals himself to the world that does not recognize him. That every single one of you knows people that are not going to recognize God on their own, but they know you and they recognize you, and when you live a life of love among them, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they see it and they recognize it, and they might even ask you, what is going on with you? Why would you act that way in that situation? Why would you do what you just did when you live that life of sacrificial love for this other person or for this in this situation? They'll recognize you and they'll recognize something very counter from the way that the world works in you. And they will be hungry and they will be thirsty for it. And that will be the opportunity to introduce them and to help them see it's not because I'm so good and wonderful. It's because the Holy Spirit of God lives within me. And apart from that, I would have reacted just the way you expected me to. But because he is in me, because I have been redeemed, because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live by in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We can say those things. We can mean those things. We can point to those things because the Spirit is alive within us. It is Spirit-filled believers. That is how Jesus reveals himself to the world. It is not through cathedrals, it is not through buildings, it is not through churches and monuments and art, as wonderful as all of that is. That is not how Jesus says he's going to reveal himself to this world. It's not through architecture. It's not through beautiful music. It's not through books. It's not 
through those things, as good as they are and as wonderful as they are, apart from the Spirit, it's all form. It's no substance. It is through Spirit-filled believers. That is how Jesus reveals himself to the world. Not through form-filled believers. Not through substance, or not, I'm sorry, not through law-filled believers. Not through judgment-filled believers, but through Spirit-filled believers. Through substance-filled believers. Through love-filled believers. It is all about love. Look at verse 23 again. The motive, the method, and the completion of all of this is love. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching to love one another. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home within him. Do you see the connection there? Do you see how important all of this is? That we not move past or move beyond or flip the page and leave the Holy Spirit behind us. And think that we have some ability to do this in our own strength. We don't. It is through spirit-filled believers that Jesus reveals himself to this world. To the world out there. That lost and dying world. And we must make sure that we are spirit-filled believers. So I want to pick up the story because you're probably wondering, that's really great, Mark. But how? How do we do it? How do we become spirit-filled? What does that look like? So if you turn to Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read several passages uh, from Acts chapter 2. This is the day when it all happens. Just a few days later, you see Pentecost, we're told, is the day that the Spirit comes. And we read about it in the book of Acts. Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. We know that the Last Supper took place the day before the Passover. And Jesus spent the day of the Passover in the grave, and then he was resurrected. So 50 days from the day of his crucifixion, we know that he was walking and talking for 40 of them. So this is about a week, week and a half after he went back up into the clouds, after the ascension. And we read these words. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own language? And they list a bunch of different languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, that is, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved 
He goes on. He continues. He talks specifically about Jesus Christ. He talks specifically about Jesus being the, the prophesied Messiah and being crucified by these very people that are now standing before them. And then he concludes, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift, the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. That's you. That's us. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. So my question for you today, as we bring this all to a close, is have you Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? When? What was it like? Is it obvious to every person that you encounter? Do they recognize? Is Jesus revealing himself to a lost and dying world in you and through you, through your life out there? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit alive and well within you? And if you feel in that little, yeah, I remember, I remember that. But maybe I'm not always in the Spirit. Maybe I'm not always living. Maybe I just kind of put that box, that gift, that supernatural gift. I tried to put it away, put it aside. I would encourage you to get it back out. I would encourage you to lean in. I would encourage you to seek more. Seek more. Jeremiah 29, 13 says that when you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart. God is not hiding from you. God is not playing a game of hide-and-seek or cat-and-mouse. He wants to live within you. He wants to take over. He wants to impact this world out there that doesn't recognize him apart from love working itself out through you. Maybe you read this and you say, I, I, haven't. I, haven't, I haven't. I haven't received the Spirit. I haven't accepted Christ as As my Lord and Savior, I haven't brought my life and my will and my mind and my emotions under the authority of another. I haven't come to faith in Christ. And today can be the day. Today can be the day where you pray that prayer and you say, God, I recognize I am a sinner in need of salvation. I am a sinner in need of your grace. I can't pay the penalty for my sins. I need you to do it. I don't want to be separated from you for eternity, and I don't want to live a meaningless life for the rest of my days here on earth. I want to experience the gift of salvation. I want to receive the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, and I want to walk out of this church different than I walked in. I want to walk out alive with the Spirit alive within me. And today can be the day of your salvation. However you choose to respond to this, if there's ever been a message that I want every single person to respond in faith, It's this one. The Spirit might be calling you to an altar. Don't let anything keep you back. The Spirit might be calling you to intercede for somebody who you know 
needs the gift of salvation. You can pray where you're seated. You can come put their name on a slip of paper, roll it up and put it in that cross. You can come pray in these center altars and and pray by yourself. You can come to the outside altars and someone will meet you there and pray with you and pray for you. You can pray where you're seated. You can stand and sing, but respond in faith to the word of God today. And if there are any gaps in the Spirit's presence in your life, confess it. Ask him. He longs. He longs to be a bigger part of your life. Ask him to be a bigger part of your life. Ask him to take control. Ask him to lead you into the truth, to remind you, to bring conviction, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to be your friend, to be your helper. He is all of those things, and he longs to be those things for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for for your word. We thank you for this inexpressible gift that you make available to each and every one of us. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, this comforter, this helper, this friend, this advocate, the spirit of truth, God within us, the Holy Spirit. God, what a gift. Thank you, Lord. Have your way in us. Have your way through us. May we respond in faith to your word. May we open ourselves to you. Have your way in these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.